Hello and welcome to the Cowboy Jesus Podcast. This is also a new podcast I'm going to be launching off the same platform. It's called the Sent to Soar Public uh, podcast. I'm going to publish it on my life coaching website. The website is www.sentosaurcoaching.com. I'm starting to do some life coaching on the side. I'm calling it Sentosaur Coaching. Maybe you're interested in uh, someone helping you discern your next phase of life, discover your purpose, chart a course for your future. If so, contact me. You can also call me at 303 303- Eight nine eight seven zero nine two. But I'm excited about this thing that I'm starting on the side. Kind of the next phase of my life, in addition to ministry, is life coaching. So to, today's title of this episode is premonition. Have you ever had a premonition? Maybe you've heard a voice or saw something. It could have been a deep feeling in your gut, but something or someone was trying to get your attention. Maybe wake you up. If you've had these, you know, I've had, I often wonder if these premonitions might be God trying to wake us up. You know, I believe God is trying to get, trying to get our attention to wake us up to directions we need to be taken in our lives. God starts with a nudge, a twinge, a gentle push. If we don't pay attention, sometimes it just ignores us and moves on. But if there's something significant in our life, God ups the ante. God tries to assign some way to get our attention. It could be something that we see in nature, a conversation with a friend, something we read. But it's like God saying in a louder voice, wake up. If you refuse to see what God has to say, God often just lets you live your life and then suffer the consequences for your actions. I have a story today. I want to tell you about, about a premonition that a young man had but ignored and suffered dire consequences. This is an actual story from someone I interviewed who survived a deadly helicopter crash. Well, I put it in story form. Everything happened exactly as it told me. I was fascinated when he told me the story. I couldn't believe it. Uh, but it's true. I'm going to read the story. I wrote it out in story form, and then I'll comment on it at the end. Let me pull up my notes and get you to the story. Okay, so the setting of the story is this young man sitting in a hospital reading a newspaper account of the accident that happened. And this is the actual newspaper account. I googled it and found the actual newspaper account and from the account I go into the story. So here it is, the story. I set the LA Times down on my lap, my legs useless, my spine snapped. The article was a short, brisk presentation of the facts. Three people were killed and three others were injured too critically when a sightseeing helicopter crashed Saturday morning near two harbors on the remote west side of Catalina Island, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Deputy said. The helicopter, registered to the sightseeing company, Island Express, crashed about 9.30 a.m. near the Little Red Schoolhouse's baseball diamond, a short distance from the town's only hotel, the Banning House Lodge. Two men and a woman were pronounced dead at the scene, said Los Angeles County Supervising Fire Dispatch Melanie Flores. They could not immediately be identified, a spokesman from the coroner's office said. 
Two people with critical injuries were flown to Harbor UCLA Medical Center in Torrance. The Island Express Eurocopter AS350, built in 1984, departed from Long Beach around 8.30 a.m. The end of the article. As I looked out the window, I thought to myself, I should have listened to her. I should have listened. I never had a premonition before. I'm not psychic, new age, cast tarot cards or read palms. I was a normal guy struggling to put my life together. When my mom died like every other son I met in the support groups, I sunk into an angry, dark depression. Breast cancer is a bitch. It took six years, a double mastectomy, and multiple rounds of chemo and radiation to kill my mother. When she died, her bones were brittle, her skin yellow, and she looked like she had just walked out of a POW camp. She was barely in the ground when my dad latched a girlfriend to his arm. Looking back, I'd agree that she was cute. No, she was beautiful. A trophy for someone my dad's age. Serena had blonde hair and aquamarine blue eyes. She was fit, tan, and was a living embodiment of her name, Serene. What did she see in my dad? Money? It had to be. He never disclosed the amount. But when the stock market crashed in 08 and the nation went bankrupt, he made a fortune. Don't ask me how. Don't ask him how. He never talked, not even to the feds. He just smiled. When my mother died, he was all smiles again, and I hated him for it. I knew he was tired from the rounds of chemo, the surgeries that removed her breasts and her hair falling out in clumps. My father was the opposite. He was tan, fit, and wealthy. He drove a new black Corvette when my mom drifted into her last coma. I could have sworn I heard him whisper one night, come on, bitch, just die and get this over with. She complied with his wish. It wasn't about a few weeks later that Serena was sitting beside him in the vet. He knew I was pissed. When his name popped up on my caller ID, I sent it directly to voicemail. When he texted, I responded politely, Please stop. I'm not going to talk. I'm not ready. I'm not where you are. Stopped. But he kept on. For weeks, my phone buzzed. Finally, I texted him, Screw you. Screw off. Enjoy your new screw. Leave me alone. He did. The silence lasted a year. At the one-year anniversary of my mother's death, he texted, Alan... It's time. I agreed to meet him for dinner, alone, at Anthony's Seafood Restaurant on the wharf. As we sat across from one another with the windows looking over the Pacific Ocean, he described how her illness had touched his life, scarred him, and he needed to move on. Serena was a gift, he said. Something I deserve after walking with your mother through those years of cancer. I sat across from him my lobster cold on the plate. I just stared as he chatted on about his new life and he'd wished I'd get over my depression and get to know her. He took a sip of his white wine and said to me, Catalina, I've booked next weekend for us. I've invited Mark and Tara to come along. Mark is my best friend. He loved my mother and she him. Mark sat in the waiting room during every surgery she had. 
marked visitor in the hospital the day before she died. Tara was his seven-year-old daughter. Mark and his wife, Lisbeth, had divorced years ago. She was a raging alcoholic and drug addict. Mark had sole custody of their daughter. My dad continued, You, Mark, Tara, and Serena will fly via helicopter from Long Beach on Saturday. I'll join you on Sunday. It'll be a great chance for you to spend some time with Mark and Tara, as well to get to know Serena. You'll love it. I swear you will. I couldn't believe it. He booked a weekend in Catalina. He didn't even ask me if I'd be willing, if I had the time. He just assumed that I'd go. Inviting Mark and Tara was a ploy to get me to come along. Why Mark agreed without checking with me first made me angry and resentful. He continued with his itinerary. You'll pick up Serena up at her apartment in Palo Alto. I couldn't believe the depth of his audacity. Now I was going to be her chauffeur. I never met the woman, and now I'm her driver. You'll go to the helipad in Long Beach and arrive by 8 o'clock. It's an hour flight. They take you up the coast, see the cliffs, soar over the ocean, and look for wells. It's much better than the ferry. It's my gift to all of you. He took another sip of wine and smiled as he set the glass down. I sat silently. No, I said. I'm not going. He picked up his wine and sipped it, looking across the table at me. His head tilted to the right and his lips tightened. He looked like a red-tailed hawk, cocking its eye to get a better view of its prey. I'd seen this look countless times in my life, when I wanted to go public instead of prep school, when I wasn't going to attend his alma mater, when I didn't want to join his fraternity. No one disagreed with my father, at least not for long. It never registers in his brain that there might be a different point of view, that the other person might have feelings, plans, or felt out flat he was wrong. He dealt with disagreement like a truck breaking through a wall. He simply backed up, gained more speed, and crashed into whatever or whoever stood in his way until they cracked and crumbled. Look, he said, I've already bought the tickets. The flights were expensive. You've never been on a helicopter before. You'll love it. And you're going. And went this way for 30 minutes. He backed his emotional truck up and ran into my wall over and over again until I cracked. Like every time before, I just wanted to shut him up. I agreed to go, pick up Serena, drive her to the helipad, meet Mark and Tara, and fly over. As I drove away from the restaurant, I bit my lower lip and felt nauseous. Why did I always cave to my father? I didn't want to go. I didn't want to spend a weekend with Serena, and I didn't want to see Mike. Now, under these circumstances, I felt herded, corralled, and cornered. It was then that I heard the voice. It was soft, gentle, a woman's voice deep in my brain, yet all around me. She simply said, don't go. This isn't going to end well. I blinked my eyes as I drove. Then I heard the voice again. The helicopter is going to crash. People will die.
Don't be one of them. A warm rush flowed through my body. My cheeks flushed. I could feel each hair tingle on my arms like a hand running from my wrist to my elbow up my shoulder to the top of my head. I felt like a lover, a dear friend. The touch was gentle like a kiss or a caress. Tears welled in my eyes. I blinked, trying to steer, trying to stay in my lane. I looked in the rearview mirror and remember looking down at my mother as she took her last breath. After she died, I touched her hand, her elbow, her shoulder, the top of her head. Then I bent down and kissed her forehead. I don't want you to die, the voice said. Please listen to me. The next three days were hell. I never had a premonition before. I didn't understand it, nor could I describe it to anyone. Was it real? Did I imagine it? Was it just because I resented my father and wished that he could taste a bit of my mother's pain? I wrestled back and forth. On the one hand, I could see my father sitting across from me at the restaurant, crashing into me over and over. On the other was the soft woman in my head. On Thursday, I made my decision not to go. I pick up Serena on Saturday morning, drive her to the helipad, drop her off, and simply drive away. I wasn't going to be run over by him. I was going to listen to whoever she was. I was going to listen to the voice. I wasn't going to die. Serena sat in the passenger seat as I drove. Her blonde hair fell down around her tan shoulders. Her blue eyes were gentle, clear and soft. Her light pastel top was pleasing and her perfume filled my Audi with lavender. If I had met her in a bar, I would have found a way to sit across from her, buy her a glass of wine and talk. She turned and placed her hand on my elbow and started talking. I stiffened and she gently let go and placed it palm up in her lap. She looked at the front windshield and softly started talking. She knew I resented her and the relationship she had with my father. She knew it was too soon after my mother's death, but she had fallen in love and wanted to build a new life with him. I drove in silence. Then I felt the same softness the night I had the premonition. A gentle blanket of warmth draped over my shoulders. I stared straight ahead. I wish I had met Serena in a bar instead of through my father. I liked her. I wasn't harsh or angry, but I told her I agreed with everything she said. I was resentful. It was too soon. And she could build a relationship with my father if she wanted. However, I didn't want any part of it. I told her I was going to drop her off at the helipad, but I wasn't going with him to Catalina. She didn't argue or disagree. She just sat and listened. When I pulled up to the Island Express building, I got out, opened the door for her, took her leather weekend bag out of the back seat, and walked her inside. Mark and Tara were already there waiting. Mark was tentative, knowing that somehow he was part of a ploy to get me to join them for the weekend. We stiffly shook hands when usually we greeted each other with a hug. 
Tara was just a beautiful seven-year-old girl who came running up and hugged me. Alan, she screamed. She made me smile. I introduced Serena to Mark and they shook hands. I told him I wasn't going. Mark drew his head back astonished. Your dad's not going to like this, he said. Tara had run over to the window looking at the shiny red helicopter sitting on the pad. In a soft whisper, whisper, I leaned into Mark and said, Screw my dad. I walked out the front doors, got in my Audi, and drove away. The emotions were swirling in my head. I can't remember a time when I had openly defied my father like this. I felt my stomach cramp. I held my hand out and it shook like a drunk drying out. Here I was, 28 years old, and I had never defied my father. I decided to tell him. I picked up my iPhone and looked for his contact. He wasn't in my favorites. He wasn't angry. He never raised his voice. He simply said, Alan, turn around. Stop at a gas station. Get a Red Bull. Go back and get on that helicopter. All it took was one sentence and my wall crashed. He didn't even need to back up and ram me again. I simply caved. His voice hit an autopilot switch in my head. It sounds ludicrous, but I said, I can't believe I'm doing this. But I continued on. I pulled over at the next overpass, crossed the I-5, and headed back to the Island Express helipad. There was a Shell gas station. I pulled in and bought a Red Bull and drank it down. As the caffeine released adrenaline in my veins, I wondered why I couldn't break free from his grip on my life. I got back in my Audi, turned on the ignition, and pulled back onto the road. I felt the warmth again around my shoulders. Whoever she was, she was back, gently urging me the other direction. But I had to go back and get on the helicopter. When I walked into the Island Express, little Tara rushed up and greeted me shouting, Alan, you came back. Both Mark and Serena looked at me puzzled. I shrugged my shoulders. The woman behind the counter said it was time to board. The pilot came out to greet us. He wore a red shirt with the Island Express logo across his chest and introduced himself. I'm Chuck. I'll be flying you to the island today. Todd, an exec from Island Express, is going to join us for the flight over. We walked out to the helicopter. Chuck opened the doors and said this was a Eurocopter AS350, one of the safest helicopters in the air. He'd been flying for years with thousands of flight hours to his credit. His voice was confident as he gave our seating orders. There were two seats up front and four across the back. Mark, why don't you sit beside me as co-pilot? Todd will sit behind you. Alan, why don't you and Tara sit beside each other in the middle? And Serena, you take the window seat on the far right side. Our bags were loaded in the back compartment as we climbed in. As we settled into our seats, 
Chuck directed us, directed us to fasten our seat belts and pull the shoulder harness down across her chest. He gave each of us bright red headsets with microphones. He said, wear these for the flight across. You'll be able to hear all of the in-flight communications. I'll also be able to explain the different sights as we leave the coast and fly across towards Catalina. Tara's smile was infectious. She giggled as she put on the headset. She looked like a ladybug, the bulging headset sagging off her head. Todd, the Island Express employee, climbed into the seat beside me. We shook hands as he fastened his belt and chest harness, and he didn't say another word the entire flight. Serena was quiet and looked away from me outside the window. Chuck pulled himself into the pilot's seat. Other Island Express employees slid our door shut and latched it. Chuck hit the power switch, looked out his window as the blades began to whir. Our headsets crackled life as Chuck explained that he was going to take a few minutes as he went through his checklist. I could feel adrenaline rise through my body. Maybe the voice in my head was just that, a voice in my head. Something I should have ignored. I smiled down at Tara. Serena looked over me and smiled, and I smiled back. Her lavender perfume was like a soft hand. I wanted to say to her, I'm sorry for being so rude. A dick, really. I have nothing against you. Words I never said, but wish I had. The rotors blurred. I reached up and lifted the headpiece away from my ears. The engine roar was definitely. I placed it back over my ear and the noise muffled. Tara was suddenly frightened. She reached over and grabbed my arm. Mark looked back behind her, smiled and mouthed, You're okay. Chuck looked out to the Island Express employee at the edge of the helipad. They exchanged thumbs up and we lifted off. Chuck dipped the nose of the helicopter, pulled back on the stick, and spun us up towards the sky. There was a gray mist that morning, but within seconds we broke into the bright morning sun. Welcome to Island Express flight to Catalina Isle. Chuck gave a half glance over his left shoulder and a half smile. While he wasn't really the flight attendant type, you could tell he loved to fly and he knew what he was doing. We're going to go up the coast, head west over the ocean, fly around to see what we can see, and then come up on Canalita on the south end of the island. It'll take about an hour. Talk in a normal voice through your microphone. I can hear everything you say, so ask any question you want. But no backseat flying. I smiled at his attempt to joke. My father was right. I did enjoy the flight. It was amazing. Beautiful, even. I felt the anger begin to soften in my gut. I also felt that warmth around my shoulders. She was with me. Look over to your left down about nine o'clock. Chuck's voice crackled through the headset. There's a pot of whales surfacing. He gently dipped the copter to the left. It was like being in a carnival ride. We looked down over the water and he circled above the whales. They were breaching, blowing, and diving, their tails like a hand waving from the depths below. It felt like it had only been a few minutes when Chuck said, 
If you look right up ahead, you can see Catalina through the clouds. The morning sun had started burning off the low clouds. We were quickly approaching the island. The explosion happened when we crested the island coast below. It sounded like a tearing a lid off a can. There was a loud pop, then the sound of metal ripping apart. The helicopter was surrounded in a brief ball of light. There was a stunned quiet. The rotors stopped spinning. Serena looked over at me and our eyes locked. There was no screaming. I looked over at Todd on my left. His eyes bulged from their sockets as he stared straight ahead. His hand gripped the armrest. The blanket wrapped around my shoulders. She said in the middle of my brain, you're not going to die. I looked in at Tara, who looked bewildered, confused, like she was lost in a grocery store aisle. I shouted to her, Tara, hold tight onto my side. Whatever you do, don't let go. I reached over and put my right arm around her and pulled her close. She put her arms around my waist and buried her face into my ribs. I grabbed hold of her far armrest as tight as I could. Looking back, I wished I had told Serena to lock arms with me as well. Chuck's voice came through the headset. Very calmly, he gave a very clear order to himself, beginning to auto-rotate. He yanked the yoke to the left and jammed his right foot to the floor. The helicopter began a clockwise turn. We weren't really falling through the sky as we were gliding and spinning. We were over the island. I remember looking forward and seeing buildings to the front glass. It was then that Chuck said, shit, power lines. I wanted to scream, no, you're going to make it. But he pushed the yoke forward and stomped on the pedals like jamming brakes in a car. The nose dipped and we plummeted towards the earth. Screams filled the copter. Serena, Todd, Mark, their voices joined in a terrifying chorus. I could feel Tara mash her face deeper in my ribs. It's true. It happens in slow motion, and your life flashes before your eyes. It was like watching a movie from up above, an angel's point of view. First, I was 10 years old, swimming in a pool with my mother. Then I graduated from high school. My father screamed at me the night I wrecked his Porsche. My mother died in a hospital room. I saw a yellow house, a woman beside me with golden hair and a small child. I knew this was to be my wife, my child, and this was our home. It was like being on the top of a Ferris wheel that suddenly broke on the downward turn and pitched your face 100 feet towards the ground. Now triple that. We were at 300 feet when the engine exploded. As the nose pitched forward, the ground loomed up like a fist. The movie stopped. Slow motion sped up. She softly spoke again. You will not die. I screamed back to her in my head. How? Who will? Why didn't you stop me? The crash was like smashing your face into rocks. I didn't close my eyes. For some reason, I wanted to watch. I dipped my chin on my chest, sucked in my breath, and waited for impact. 
I gripped Tara's far armrest, pulling it towards me. Serena had her head turned down towards Tara. She was vomiting. The screaming stopped. There was a whoomph, glass shattered, metal ripped, and a ball of fire engulfed the body of the helicopter. My chair ripped from the frame and tore left. Amazingly, I could feel Tara's armrest still gripped in my arm. We flew and then hit the ground. A lightning bolt of pain ripped from the bottom of my spine up through my skull. Tara's chair tore from my right hand. My seat car wheel landed on the back and slid to a stop. The grass on the field around the crash caught on fire. Slow motion resumed. I looked to my right and saw Serena's head pop from her shoulders like a child's Barbie doll. She was dead. I heard Tara screaming. She was alive. Then I saw the flames coming toward me. I started screaming, no, no, no. Time sped up. I reached down and the safety harness popped free in my hand. The flames were at the seat of my chair. I rolled out and tried to get up and run. My legs didn't move and another bolt of pain shot up my spine. Now I was screaming in terror. The flames were all around me as my pant leg caught fire. I could smell but not feel flesh burning. I started pulling myself along, reaching for bunches of grass, anything to crawl from the fire. I looked up and saw a white chalk line in the the dirt. I had no idea what it was, but I knew I had to get across it. I looked up and saw people running from a red building. One man ran ahead of them and crossed the chalk line and stepped towards me. I screamed, help me, help. He stopped dead in his tracks and stared down at me. Then he slowly backed away. I lost it. Don't let me die. Don't let me die. I started crying, snot running from my nose, my eyes searing from the ashes. I pulled and pulled at grass, inching towards the chalk line. It was a lifeline. I had to get across it. As I sobbed, I looked over and two people were pulling Tara from her seat. Two others were dragging Mark away from the flames across the chalk line. His head sacked down. His toes dug in the dirt. He's dead, I thought. I looked ahead and three people ran past the guy back in a way. They crossed the chalk line and ran through the flames. Two grabbed my wrist and one took a hold of a pant leg through flames lit from the fabric. They drug, drug me across the white chalk line to green grass again. I leaned over. We learned that in the, uh, I learned later we crashed in the middle of a baseball diamond. Sorry about that. I learned later that we crashed in the middle of a baseball diamond. The chalk line ran from third base to home. Freed from the fire, they rolled me on my back and slapped at the flames until they were out. A woman dressed in white sat on my head and cradled my head in her hands. She held my head very still. Her hair spilled down around her face as she looked down at me. Tears spilled from her eyes as she smiled and said, You will not die. You will not die. I will not let you die. I could see the man who grabbed my burning pant leg slapping his own hand on the ground, putting out the flames that engulfed his hand and sleeve. Two men kneeled over my chest. They were calm but intense. What's your name? 
Alan. My name's Alan, I said. One said, we've called 911. Help is on its way. Hold on, Alan. Hold on, the other said. The woman brushed her hair up out of her face. She wiped my tears with her hand and the snot with her dress. She never took her eyes off me. She was gently crying and smiling. She said it again. I will not let you die. Tara, the little girl, is she alive? I asked. Don't move, one of the men said. Don't move. The other turned his head away and puked in the grass. I knew it must be bad. Tara, the girl, please tell me if she made it. The men looked up and behind them. Yes, one of them shouted. Someone is carrying her up to the red schoolhouse. She's screaming so she's alive. I felt calm. That warm blanket surrounded me. The woman brushed her hair again from her face. She was still down on her knees, her hands holding my cheekbones and face rigid and still. I heard sirens. Someone came with a stretcher. They slid it under me and walked over to the schoolhouse. As we went up a rise, I looked down and saw two rotor blades sticking out of the ground, pieces of metal, and people slapping the grass trying to put out the fire. They opened the doors to the schoolhouse and set the stretcher down on the floor. Tara was on my left whimpering. Mark was on my right, unconscious. But I could tell he was breathing. He had a gash across his face, his arms were twisted back, and a white bone stuck out of his pant leg. But he was alive. Three, M three EMTs, part of the hotel staff, came running into the building. One took charge of Tara, the second Mark, the last kneeled beside the woman dressed in white who sat on my head. The EMT said, they've life flighted three helicopters here. It will take them 20 to 30 minutes to fly direct. A helicopter, I asked. They're bringing a helicopter? Yes, it's the quickest way, the EMT said. I'm not going back on a helicopter. I couldn't believe it. I had just survived a helicopter crash. I wasn't going to go back to the mainland on one. The EMT was stone quiet. After a moment, he said, We'll figure something out. The most important thing is help is on its way. I looked up at the windows of the schoolhouse. People had their faces pasted against the glass, their hands on either side of their cheeks and forehead blocking the glare from the morning sun. They looked like they were peering down into a hole searching for signs of life. They put blankets on us. I was shivering and told the EMT I felt nauseous and wanted to puke. They said, we don't dare move you. Move you. If you're going to vomit, tell us and we'll move your head to the side. Other than that, don't move. I could hear Tara whimpering as two women and the other EMT knelt beside her. In an even voice, I said, Tara, I'm here, Tara. This is Alan. I'm here. Your daddy is fine right beside me. We made it. You held on to me. Good girl. Now, keep hanging on. The doors flew open and several people in red and blue jumpsuits came into the room rolling gurneys draped with IVs. Again, they broke up into three pairs and worked on us. My EMT reported what he knew to the flight paramedic. 
suspected broken spine, third-degree burns, fractured tibia, lacerations on buttock and back. The paramedic nurse nodded in agreement. She ordered the other to start an IV. She knelt beside me and said, Alan, we're flying you back to Harbor UCLA in Torrance, okay? I shouted, no! Tara started screaming. I pleaded, please, God, take me in a boat across. I'm sorry, Alan, she said firmly. It will take too long and your life will be jeopardized. We're giving you something now to ease the pain. You'll feel a bit foggy, but you'll be fine. The warmth started from my shoulders and ran down my arms and into my abdomen. I could feel nothing else. The woman dressed in white blurred above my face. Before I passed out, she put her mouth to my ear and said, I will not let you die. I spent the next year in a rehab unit. My left leg had third degree burns up towards my thigh. My right tibia was pinned together. I fractured my spine in three places which left me paralyzed from the waist down. Mark almost died three times. He went through 16 surgery and has major brain trauma. Tara survived with just a few minor burns and scrape. Serena, Chuck, and Ty, Todd, died on impact. The explosion is under investigation. My father visited me six weeks after the crash. He came in with a tan brunette. Unlike the rest of us, he recovered quickly. They said, I'll never walk again. But I know differently. I can feel something knitting together. She told me I will walk again. And this time, I'm listening. It's quite the story, isn't it? Everything happened exactly as the surviving man told me. You know, he even recuperated to the point where he could walk again, although his legs were numb. Periodically, he had short pains running down his legs, but he could walk. He even could jog and run. It was unbelievable. He said the crash changed his life. I mean, how could it not? Not only does he count each day as pure joy, but he also listens to what he calls the God voice in his head. He had a premonition, he said, from his dead mother. She gently tried to warn him, but he dismissed it. She tried persistently to get his attention, but he kept ignoring it. He ignored it at his own parable. I wonder how often we do this. We hear a voice, something inside of us that gently warns us, but we dismiss it. We get sucked into the flow of the day, but the next day, the voice is a little louder. It says someone is trying to get our attention, and then we ignore it. I like to think about these divine nudges, these premonitions as being messages from God. I believe God, the ultimate being or however you want to call it, interacts with us, talks to us, tries to communicate to us. God talks through dreams, memories, feelings, hunches, persistent ideas. Even though we ignore God's communication, I believe God never goes away. Something might happen to us, a life event, and we go, Oh my gosh, the voice, it was a premonition. I wish I had listened to it. Do you pay attention to the divine nudges in your life?
Do you listen to the voice of God? Pay attention to this story. Hopefully, you'll start to wake up and listen to the holy voice that is trying to give you a premonition. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. You know, we can connect on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can uh, read my blog, Cowboy Jesus. Again, check out my website, www.centosaurcoaching.com. Take care. We'll see you in the next episode.